Well, I, I want to welcome you to the second half of our series on the Gospel of John. Last semester we covered the first half, the first 10 chapters, and this semester we're going to take up chapter 11 and go all the way through the end of the book. Now, one of the things I need you to understand is that even though we're, we stopped at kind of the halfway point of the book, it, it's really kind of lopsided. And you'll see that as we uh, start out today in this latest lesson in the series. John has crammed a tremendous amount of information into the last 11 chapters. And in those last 11 chapters, we're really only covering about a month and a half of time. And most of it is spent on one week of Jesus' life, the very last week of his life before he went to the cross. And so even though it looks like it's the second half of the book, it's really the last part of his life. And it's the most important part of his life, as you'll soon see. So we covered chapters 1 through 10. And chapters 1 through 10 were basically an overview of the first 36 months of his life. So within 10 chapters, John took the time to cover 36 months of Christ's life, roughly three years of his life. In the second half, it's only going to cover basically three and a half months. And as I said, he's crammed a whole lot into that segment of time. And it's so, it's so important to John that he's taking 11 chapters to do what he did in 10 chapters to cover three years of Christ's life. Now, as I said, the, the greatest emphasis is going to be in the last seven days, the Passion Week of Jesus' life from Sunday to Sunday. And it's going to take us all the way up to his crucifixion and also his resurrection. And that's how the book will end. It ends on a very high note. And what's really cool is that we're going to end right before Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think it's going to be timely that we're in this half of the book during this season of the new year. So here's a timeline, and this is in your handout. Uh, if you didn't get the handout, if you haven't downloaded it, if you go to the website and you go to the link that has the video, there is a PDF that you can download, and this is what it contains. Uh, basically what I tried to do is show the whole three and a half years of Jesus' life on this earth, beginning with his baptism by John, and then carrying all the way through until we get near the end of his life at the 39th month of his life. And that's kind of where we're going to pick it up today as we pick it up in chapter 11. And more, most specifically, we're going to eventually lead to those last critical days of his life, beginning with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then leading all the way up to his resurrection and ultimately his ascension back to the Father. So we're going to cover a lot of territory over the next weeks as we go through the study together. Now, if you were with us last semester, you're going to see there's a slight change in the name of our series. It's now called Jesus Christ, the Deity of Jesus and the Gospel of John. And the reason I changed it is because the emphasis is beginning to change. As we go into chapter 11, we're going to see that John begins to change the focus of what he's trying to say and what he's trying to teach us about Jesus Christ. So last semester, it was love divine. And there's periods between those words because they're really two different statements about Jesus. We saw last semester that Jesus Christ was the greatest expression of the love of God. He was God in human flesh. And it was the way that God showed you and I as sinners who were in rebellion against him how much he truly loved us in spite of us. So he was love and yet he was the divine son of God 
who came to take on human flesh. We know from Romans 5, 8, Paul tells us, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ, his son, to die for us while we were still sinners. Not after we got our act together, not after we repented of all our sins, not after we did all the things we were supposed to do, but while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. John tells us in his first letter, 1 John in chapter 4, this is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So what we're going to see is as we move into chapter 11, the emphasis is going to move from this idea of Jesus Christ being God incarnate, God, the son of God, expressing the love of God for sinful men and women to something different. He'll still remain the son of God. He'll still be the greatest expression of of the love of God. And as a matter of fact, the cross is the greatest expression of the love of God. Because what does it say here? He came to die. He didn't just come to heal. He didn't just come to teach. He didn't just come to walk amongst men. He came in order that he might die because without his death, we have no hope. Without his resurrection, there's no future for us. So we're going to see in the last really month and a half of his life, the change in focus that John is going to show us about Jesus. So we know from last semester that Jesus was more than just a man. Now, he was a man, and that was very important for John to get across to his readers. He wanted them to understand that Jesus was a man. He was human. He, he was born to Mary. He lived with us. He, he ate amongst us. He slept. He grew weary. He had pain. He, he, all the things we suffer, he suffered. He was a man, but yet he was also the incarnate son of God. He he was something incredibly different, like nothing we have ever seen before on this planet. He's what the scripture call God in the flesh, God incarnate. That's what that word means in the Latin. It's God in meat, basically. Jesus Christ, the son of God, left glory, according to Philippians chapter two, and took on human flesh and came to dwell among men. That's what sets him apart. We know from John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Nobody's ever laid their eyes on God. Even Moses, when he asked to see the glory of God, was put into the cleft of the rock, and he only got to see the back of God. We're not even sure what that looked like, but if he had seen the face of God, he would have died. So no one has ever seen the face of God, but the unique one who is himself God, speaking of Jesus, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed, manifested, shown forth God to us. How did he do it? He did it by taking on human flesh and living amongst us. He was 100% God and 100% human. Now, back in chapter 3, when Nicodemus, the Pharisee, came by night to have a meeting with Jesus because he he was intrigued by Jesus. He didn't know what to think about this rabbi from Nazareth. So he shows up at night in secret and has a one-on-one meeting with Jesus. And Jesus said some pretty profound things to this Pharisee. Here's one of the things he said that we're very familiar with. It's John 3, 16. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that he is the son of God, should not perish but have eternal life. Now this whole conversation that he had with Nicodemus left this guy's head spinning. You know, Jesus said, unless you are born again or born from above, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And and for Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a faithful keeper of the laws of God, he thought he already had a ticket stamped to glory. But Jesus said, no, uh, that's not the case. 
You're not going to enter into the presence of God through your righteous acts. You're going to have to be born from above. And this whole conversation confused Nicodemus. But Jesus went on and said, I am your source of hope. I am your key to eternal life. I am the means by which you will enter into the kingdom of God. And once again, Nicodemus, confused by Jesus' words, not understanding what he was trying to tell him, would eventually walk away. Confused, probably upset, maybe even a little bit irritated with the things that Jesus said to him. But we're going to see in the second half of the book, again, that change, that shift in tenor and focus by John. But for 10 chapters, he has tried to establish for you and I, the readers of his gospel, the very fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Messiah was the anointed one, the, the long-awaited one that the Israelites knew was coming. He had been promised by God in the Old Testament scriptures, and they had been waiting for him for centuries. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, they really believed he might truly be the Messiah. But they were expecting something pretty unique. They were expecting a king. They were expecting someone like David. They were expecting him to rise up and lead the people in rebellion against the Romans and set Israel back on the proverbial throne of the, the region. They would become a powerhouse again. They would be set free from subjugation. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus didn't quite fit the bill, but they were intrigued by his miracles and his message. And they, they began to follow him. And so for a, 10 chapters, John has tried to reveal the fact that he truly was the Messiah, but the Messiah that God had promised, not what the people expected. He was coming in a different form, he, and he was coming for a different purpose. And that's what the last 11 chapters is all about. We're going to see that in chapter 11, all the way through chapter 21, John is going to reveal the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. We've seen him do miracles. We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him do all kinds of fantastic things, and he's spoken all kinds of incredible messages to the people. But that's not really why he came. Those came, things were done to validate who he was, but really he came to do one thing and one thing only, to complete the will of his Father, to go to the cross, to die on behalf of sinful men and women like you and me. And so that's what we're going to find out in these last 11 chapters. So it's Jesus Christ. Now, for years growing up, I thought that was his last name. It, you know, his whole name was Jesus Christ. I don't think he had a middle name, but it was Jesus Christ. So I thought that was his last name. But Christ is really the Greek translation of Messiah. It's a designation. It has nothing to do with his name. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. But his, really, his title is Christ, Messiah. And you're going to see that used interchangeably by John throughout his gospel. And so that's why I've called this second half of the series, Jesus Christ. Again, periods between the words because they're really dealing with two different things. When Jesus came as a man, he was born to Mary, born of a virgin, but he was born from her womb as an infant. So he was fully human. But as we just said, he's also fully God. That's the Christ part. He came as Jesus but he was also the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. He grew up to be a rabbi at 30 years old when his ministry began, 
which was the age that any Jewish man could become and serve as a rabbi, he served. He walked around teaching as a rabbi. He was commonly referred to as a rabbi during his three and a half years of ministry. But he was also the redeemer, the redeemer of Israel, the redeemer of sinful men and women. He was sent by God. He was a teacher. How often have we heard him referred to as the teacher? The Pharisees would come and almost sarcastically refer to him as teacher. We have a question for you. He was a teacher. As a rabbi, he was a teacher. He taught a lot. And when he taught, the people were amazed at the power of his words and the wisdom of his teaching. But he's also a healer. Now, not just the healer of people with diseases, but ultimately the healer of man's greatest problem, which is sin and separation from God. You see, these two categories of Jesus, the man, and Christ, the Redeemer, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, go hand in hand, but they're, they're slightly different in a sense. He was a servant when he walked this earth. He served his disciples. He served the weak and the poor. He washed his own disciples' feet, as we'll see. And yet he was the Savior. All the while he walked with them, he was their Savior. And he knew what he was going to have to do to save them, which is go to the cross. And they never could get their heads and hearts around that concept. They loved to be served by him, but they really didn't understand that he was going to have to die for them. They referred to him as their master, and yet he was truly their Messiah. Now, they would admit that he's their Messiah, but again, every time they did that, it was couched in their definition of Messiah, their expectation of the Messiah. And that's why they were always thinking about when he sets up his kingdom, we're going to be able to rule with him because we've hung out with him. We've endured with him. We've been there through thick and thin with him. And they were thinking about an earthly kingdom, but Jesus had come to establish something completely different. He was their friend. They loved Jesus. They would lay down their lives for Jesus. At least they thought they would. And yet he was really their king. And at no point in chapters one through 10, do we ever really see the disciples treat Jesus like a king. They wanted him to be the king but they didn't think it would really happen until he was actually sitting on a throne. But the truth was, Jesus left a throne to come down to earth. He was already king. They just hadn't acknowledged it yet. They hadn't admitted it yet. They hadn't understood it yet. He was their provider. If you think about it as their rabbi, he was their teacher, he was their caretaker, and so everywhere they went, he supplied everything they ate. He was the one that made sure that they had a place to sleep and clothes on their, their bodies and food to eat. He was in charge. He was like the father of the 12. And yet he was also going to be the propitiation for their sins. Now that's a very um, theological term that just simply means that he was the satisfaction that God required to pay for their sins. God would not be satisfied until all the sins of mankind had been paid for. Their debt had been taken care of. And so Jesus was going to take care of the greatest need those men ever had, which is their sin debt. And he would do it by dying on the cross. So he's Jesus the Christ. So let's talk about this idea of Jesus being the Christ and what does it mean? 
Chapter 11 starts out with a story, and it's probably one you're very familiar with, and it has to do with this man named Lazarus. So let's take a look at it. It says, now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet. Now, we're getting an introduction to the characters in this story. The first one is Lazarus. The second one is Mary and then his sister, her sister Martha. Now, it's taking place in a place called Bethany. Now, Bethany's going to be really important, and I just want to show you where we are in, in terms of context in this story. Bethany is just east of Jerusalem, so it's in Judea, and it's, it's really a stone's throw from, from Jerusalem, and it's going to play an important part in the life of Jesus in these last days of his life, this last month and a half of his life. It's, the, it's where he's going to begin his triumphal entry, and you'll see the importance of that when we get to that chapter. But Bethany's going to be important. So Lazarus is in Bethany. His sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus with word that their brother is ill. And so it goes on and says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. John's giving us context. Whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, don't miss this. These two sisters have sent for Jesus. Now, Jesus is not anywhere near them at this point in time, so they've sent a messenger to him. He's actually further to the east by the Jordan River. And they say, we need help. Our brother Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. And that phrase, whom you love, is going to play an important part in understanding what's going on. And then Jesus, when he gets the news, listen to what he says. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So his immediate response to this news that his friend Lazarus is ill is, it seems to be that he's not going to die. This illness does not lead to death. But if you've ever read the story, you know that it does. So what is Jesus saying here? One of the things we have to do to understand what Jesus is saying is go back to the original language and what did the words actually mean? And really, it's better translated, this illness does not end in death. In other words, it's not the end of the road. It's not the final statement for Lazarus. He is going to die, as you'll see, and Jesus will admit it, but it's not going to end there. It's a means to another end. Lazarus will die, and yet it will have a purpose. That's exactly what he says here. It is for the glory of God so that none, so that the Son of God can be glorified through it. And this is an interesting statement that I think went right over the heads of the disciples. They, they don't fully understand what's going on here. They know Lazarus is sick. Jesus has said, it doesn't sound like he's going to die, but he says, it's going to be for my glory and God's glory. And they all scratch their heads probably in wonder and just, what is he talking about? What's going on here? This is very similar to another story that took place earlier when Jesus and the disciples ran into a man who was described by John as having been born blind. In other words, he came out of the womb blind. He never saw the sun. He never saw the grass. He never saw his mom and dad. He was born blind. It was a permanent problem in his life. And his disciples, when they see this guy, they ask Jesus, Rabbi, there's that term rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And that was a common belief among the Jews that if you suffered from any kind of malady, any kind of uh, physical problem, you had sinned, and that's the reason you were suffering. And so their basic take on this is this guy's blind because somebody screwed up somewhere, either his parents 
and he's been punished because of his parents or he sinned. Now, the fact that he was born blind makes it sound like it was probably his parents because he didn't come out of the womb able to see. He came born blind. So it's like he inherited this malady because of his parents. But Jesus is going to tell them it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. In other words, you're, both, you're wrong on both strikes. It's because God wants to show his power. And so Jesus knows something they don't know. This was a divine appointment. This, it was ordained by God that they would run into this guy. And that Jesus was going to use this man's problem, his blindness, to bring glory to God and to reveal the power of God. It's exactly what's going on here with Lazarus. Jesus gets this news. I don't think he was surprised by it. I think he knew it was coming. And so he responds to it differently than the, the disciples. But listen to what happens in verse 6. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus, his friend, was ill, okay, what does he do? He stayed two, two days longer in the place where he was. It, it, for us, that's, that's like, what, what are you doing, Jesus? If you know he's ill and you can do something about it and you obviously can, why haven't you gotten up and left? But he delays. It says, so, in other words, the result of his knowledge of this news is he waits. He delays for two whole days. And then it says, after this, he said to his disciples, let's go. All right, we're going. We're going to Bethany. Get your stuff together. And again, the disciples were always at a loss as to what Jesus was trying to do. I would love to have been there to see the looks in their faces when he, he came to them and said, get your stuff together, come on, we're leaving. We're going to help out Lazarus. And they're like, why have you waited? Why have you waited two whole days? And it was going to take them a couple of days to get there. So we're probably four days out from him ever getting to Bethany to help out his friend. But listen to the disciples. The other thing they had on their mind was the idea of him going back into Judea because something bad had happened in Judea back in chapter 10. They say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again? You're going to go back into the lion's den? You're going to go back into this region where the Jewish religious leaders hate your guts? And they're afraid, not just for him, but for them that he would venture back into this situation. Well, what happened? Well, here's, here's again the context you need to understand. Jesus is somewhere along the Jordan River, and these two arrows point to where we think he probably was. We have no way of knowing exactly. But he's all the way over on the other side of the Jordan River, and he's got to get to Bethany, which is really just a few miles away from Jerusalem in Judea. And Jerusalem is the home of who? The religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the high priests, and they all hate Jesus with a vengeance. Well, what happened there is that they, they tried to stone him. The last time he was there, chapter 10, he got into a confrontation. Here's what he said to those men, those religious leaders who hated Jesus with a passion, saw him as a thorn in their flesh, wanted to get rid of him because he was leading the people away and astray and away from them. Here's what he said to them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Now keep in mind 
what he said that got him in trouble with these guys. He's talking about eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of, out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now that last statement was a deal breaker for the Pharisees. With that statement, Jesus is claiming equality with God Almighty. That's blasphemy, as far as they're concerned. So not only is he offering eternal life, he's telling them, I offer eternal life because I and the Father are one. I am equal to God Almighty, and I have the power to offer life to whoever I want to offer it to. And the result was, they picked up stones to stone him. It was against the Roman law for the Jews to practice stoning or any form of capital punishment. But they were so angry that they were willing to break the laws of the Romans to get rid of this guy. But they failed. And just a few verses later, it says they sought to arrest him. See, it wasn't God's plan yet for Jesus to be stoned, and stoning wasn't the way he was going to die. But yet it shows us how angry they were at Jesus and it's going to lead into these last days of his life and their vengeance to get rid of him once and for all. And you can see why the disciples are a little bit upset that you would want to go back to Judea near Jerusalem and run the risk of running into these guys again or them finding out that you're nearby. They were not going to give up their intentions to kill Jesus. So Jesus says something really interesting to them. And, and it's, it sounds like Yoda. It, it, what he says is, is really kind of a proverbial in, in, in its style. It, it's, Jesus talks sometimes in such cryptic ways that it's really hard to understand exactly what he's saying. Here's what he tells these guys. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Well, yeah. If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. Okay, I, I get that part. But then he goes on and says, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is he saying? And again, I love to imagine what the disciples, the 12 disciples are sitting there listening to say this. He's told them that we're getting ready to head back in Judea, and all they're thinking about is Pharisees with stones in their hands, and he gives them this little speech. What's he telling them? There is so much built into this, and it all goes back to a theme that John has hammered home really hard in the first 10 chapters, and it has to do with Jesus as the light of the world. John chapter 9, Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. In other words, I have a time period in which I have to do what I've been called to do. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In other words, I'm here, I have a job to do, and as long as I'm here, I shed light on this very dark situation. But the day's coming, and very soon, when the light will be snuffed out. So he's telling them, we've got work to do, in spite of what the Pharisees have said, and the threats, and the risks. We, we've got a job to do. I have a job to do. We know in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. That's one of the many I am statements of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I'm the one who brings light into the darkness of sin. He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's trying to let these men know, as long as you're with me, you'll be okay. You're going you're gonna to not walk in darkness. You're going to walk in light because I am with you. Trust me. Rely on me. Keep following me. 
Don't worry about the Pharisees. Don't worry about the Sadducees. You know, in, in my uh, devotionary I wrote that you should have a copy of, I said this, Jesus assured them that as long as he was acting in accordance with his father will, Father's will, in other words, walking in the light of day, doing what God had called him to do, he would be perfectly safe. No one could stone him. No one can harm him. Nothing was going to happen to him that was outside the will of God as long as he stayed faithful to the will of God. And the second thing is that as long as they remain in step with him, walking with him in the light of his glory, they, they would not stumble. They would be fine. Now we know that as soon as Jesus was arrested, and we'll see this as we move into the, the later chapters, that these guys did stumble. When they thought their Messiah, their friend, their leader, their master, their rabbi had been arrested and was headed to crucifixion, they all vacated the premises. They stumbled. It became dark. They became worried. But let's get back to Lazarus. We know he's sick. Jesus has made a decision. And after giving this little cryptic, cryptic saying to his disciples, meant to encourage them, but I don't know that they fully understood it. It says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Once again, I, I don't understand sometimes why Jesus said the things he did. But he, he leaves these guys, once again, even more confused. He says, come on, we're leaving because he's fallen asleep. And they immediately think, well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to get better. He, he just needs his rest. And they don't understand what he's saying. They don't understand that Jesus is saying something so much more profound. So Jesus has to tell them plainly, which he did so many times. You know, he's always explaining his parables. He's always trying to get them to understand, okay, did you understand what I just told the people? No. Okay, well, let me explain it to you. That's exactly what he does here. He says, Lazarus has died. Okay, everybody got that? Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. That's another one of those strange statements of Jesus that had to hit the ears of the disciples in an awkward way. You're glad? You're glad that you weren't there? But see, Jesus qualifies it so that you may believe. Now, what you need to understand is that we're getting into the very last days of Jesus' life, and he is moving towards Jerusalem, and the heat is increasing or it's going to increase. And that heat includes the heat on the disciples. And they're going to be challenged in their belief of who he is because things are not going to go well for the most part. And so he says, this is so that you may believe, let's go. Let's go to him. He's gonna die, but there's a purpose behind his death so that you may believe. Would they believe immediately? No. Would they get exactly what happened in Bethany? No, but eventually they would when the rest of his life played itself out. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, well, let's all go that we may die with him. It's kind of a pessimistic, pessimistic view, right? You know, Thomas the doubter, okay, let's go. We're all gonna die. They weren't expecting good things. They weren't expecting that they were gonna have a, a great welcome when they believe, but Jesus is all about belief. See, Jesus is trying to get them to understand something significant is about to happen. This entire story that we're looking at is about two things, death and life. They're gonna stare death in the face and they're gonna see life, resurrected life, displayed before their very eyes. They don't know it yet. 
See, Jesus has told them and he's told Nicodemus and he's told the high priest and others that I am the key to eternal life over and over again. But they haven't comprehended that they haven't accepted it. And so what's he going to do? He's going to demonstrate for them just how powerful he really is. He's going to raise back to life a man who is dead. Now we know from the other gospels that Jesus has raised others from death. But this one is unique because of the, the situation surrounding Lazarus' death. We're going to find out that he's been dead for four days and he's already in a tomb. And that tomb's going to become an important link to the latter days of Jesus' own life. So he's going to dis display his power. And what's amazing is the story seems to indicate that Jesus shows up late. He's late to the party. He, he doesn't get there in time because, again, we find out that this guy's been dead four days. Jesus gets the news. He waits two days, takes two days to get to Bethany. And so he's been dead four days. Now, it doesn't take a scientist or a medical expert to understand that four days after death, the body's in a pretty sad state, especially in this climate. And we're also going to find out he's already been placed in a tomb. So he's been prepared for burial, been wrapped in cloths. He's been stuck in a tomb with a stone rolled over the door and he's begun to rot. So this is a pretty incredible situation Jesus is walking into and everybody has given up hope. How do we know? Because it's the two sisters, Mary and Martha, greet Jesus independent of one another and they both say the same thing. Martha says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have shown up on time, he'd still be here because you could have healed him. But she didn't expect anything beyond this point because he's dead. Well, Mary has the same reaction. She feels, falls at his feet. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have shown up on time, my brother would still be here. You see the doubt, you see the despair, the disappointment that they knew that Jesus could heal their brother because they had seen him do it of others, but Jesus had shown up late. He hadn't gotten there in time to save their brother, but they were going to find themselves to be so wrong. And that's why this story is so critical. It's, it's the, the key point in the life of Jesus that turns the page into what he came to do and reminds us of the incredible nature of his mission. So Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Again, kind of a cryptic statement. She doesn't fully understand what he's talking about. And she says, well, yeah, he's going to rise again at the resurrection. She thinks Jesus is talking about some future event when the dead will rise. And Jesus says, you know, you're kind of right, but you're also wrong. And he tells her something significant. He goes, your brother will rise. And then he says, I am the resurrection. You're thinking about something way out there in the future. Guess what? It's standing right in front of you. The power behind the future resurrection is me. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to wait. You can be guaranteed that event even now. And on top of that, Lazarus is going to rise again right now. Not in the future, but now. Because I have the power to make it happen. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is letting her know that the key to eternal life is him. 
And this poor woman, she's obviously in grief. She's been crying for four days. Her brother is dead. And I'm going to cut her some slack. She didn't get it. She didn't understand it. But Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. If you believe, you will live and never die. And then he asked her, do you believe this? Man, what a, what a, um, a statement to put somebody on the edge to really confront them and say, do you believe all that I just told you? Do you believe this? And she says, well, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. I I believe these things. Notice she doesn't really answer his question directly. She says, here's what I do believe. I believe you're the Christ. And here's what she believed. I believe you're the long awaited Messiah. I believe you're the future King of Israel. I believe you to be a miracle worker and healer. That's why we called you, but you showed up late. I believe you to be the son of God. I believe you to be everything, but I don't believe that you can give life to the dead. At no point in this story does anybody other than Jesus ever show any idea that this guy is going to rise from the dead. The disciples, Mary, Martha, the mourners, her friends, other family members, people from the village, they have no clue, no expectation that Lazarus is ever going to come out of that tomb until when? the future resurrection. But see, Jesus had another plan. Jesus was going to give life to the dead because he said to Nicodemus again, whoever believes in him, in me, shall not perish but have eternal life. See, here's this guy. He's dead. He's perished. But guess what? Jesus had the power to give him back his life. And ultimately, Jesus would have the power to give him eternal life. This is a powerful statement. It's an incredible moment in time. John 3, 35 through 36, again, Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the father loves the son and has given him all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And this sets the stage for this incredible miracle that's about to take place. So Jesus moved by the sadness of Mary and Martha, the mourners around the tomb, the loss of his friend. He's moved. He has compassion. So he goes to the tomb and there's that stone laying across the opening of the tomb. And it must have, in Jesus' mind, reminded him of what he was facing just days later, a month and a half later, his own death, his own burial, a tomb with a stone rolled over the entrance. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And you can imagine the shock on everybody's faces as they went, what? Do what? And Martha's the first to respond. She goes, he's what are you thinking, Lord? By this time, there's going to be an odor. This guy has begun to decay. You don't want to do that. You don't want to roll away that stone. And how does Jesus respond? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Not believe that I'm some future king. Not believe that, that I'm going to set up my kingdom on earth. Not believe that I'm a healer and a miracle work, but believe that I truly am the key to eternal life. You're about to see the glory of God. You're about to see something that only God can do. If you believed, you would see the glory of God. So let's fast forward just to the end. Jesus just simply says, after they rolled away the stone, Lazarus come out. Now stop and think about that for just a second. What kind of guts did it take for Jesus to say that? None whatsoever, because he's God. For me to say it, If I walked up to a tomb and demanded someone to come out, I would look like an idiot. 
because nothing's going to happen. But see, Jesus was God. Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus had power that no one else on earth ever had before. And so when he said, Lazarus, come out, something immediately happened. Now, what's fantastic about this story is that Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is helpless. Lazarus is hopeless. His body has begun to decay. His muscles have begun to atrophy. Everything is falling apart. And yet, at the words of Jesus, his body regained its life. And not only that, the decay was reversed. And he was completely restored to his former state. Perfect health. In a second. Just by Jesus saying, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He was still in his burial cloth. He was like a mummy coming out of the tomb. He had, to, he had a difficult time navigating and it must have scared everybody's out of their mind. Everybody was just petrified, couldn't believe it, that this body was walking out of the tomb, wrapped in cloths at the words of Jesus. And and, and I, I can only imagine everybody just standing there, not knowing what to do. And poor Lazarus, who's probably suffocating, is standing there waiting for somebody to help him. And so Jesus says, unbind him, let him go. What's everybody waiting for? I just did an incredible miracle and you're all standing, staring at it. And I love what he says, unbind him, let him go. Think about this. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse one, it says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a messianic passage written hundreds of years earlier. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. See, Jesus Christ had come to set people free, to loose them. Later on in John chapter 8, Jesus said, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, but you got to get out of the death cloth. You can't stay wrapped up in what killed you or what is holding you captive. you got to be released fully. And I just picture Lazarus wrapped in those cloths, standing there staggering, trying to breathe, wanting to get out, but he needs to be released from the cloth that held him. See, Lazarus had been set free from the bonds of death. He was alive, his heart's beating, everything's fine. Everything that had begun to decay is now whole, but he was still bound by grave cloths. He he couldn't go about his life, his new life in Christ. He was alive, but what strikes me is that he still appeared to be dead, right? He still looked like a dead man just standing up. And probably the whole crowd was fearful of him. But he was alive. Underneath the death cloths, there was new life. But he had to be set free from the trappings of death. Now you may be wondering, okay, so where are you going with all this? What's the point of this story? Well, not only does it lead into and set the stage for everything that's going to happen in the next 11 chapters. And not only is it a foreshadowing of the very things that are going to happen to Jesus Christ and his own resurrection from the dead, but it also has a very powerful message for you and I. This whole idea of put off, get him out of those grave clothes. He's alive. He once was dead, but now he has life, but you got to get him out of the grave cloths. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now imagine this, four days wrapped in those cloths, his body decaying, those cloths were contaminated with death. And they needed to be removed. He needed to put on the newness that he had been given, the new life he had been freed to live, but he had to be set free from the cloths that bound him. Those trappings that tied him to death. And see, what I want you to understand as you think about this this week and as you have your discussion in your small groups, every one of us was dead in our trespasses and sin. Every one of us was helpless and hopeless, we're not, unable to do anything about our sorry state in life prior to Christ. But when Christ gave us new life, we had to put off those old grave clothes those things that wrapped us, those things that reminded us of our death, that reminded us of how helpless and hopeless we were. And here's my fear. Many of us are walking around like Lazarus, stumbling around, still wrapped in the cloths of death, the trappings of our old dead life. And so here's what I want you to talk about in your groups, either in your small group, if you're in one, or with your wife, or get your kids together. Just talk to somebody about this, because this is profound. What are some of the grave cloths we still wear that keep us from living free indeed? And we've got them. We, we still live in fear. We still live in doubt. We still live in weakness. We still live with more fear of man than fear of God. We, we have all these contaminated cloths that wrap us up and keep us from living the life we've been called to live. Secondly, how does Lazarus' new life compared to the one we enjoy in Christ. You gotta keep in mind, Lazarus was given new life, but he was gonna die again. It's kind of a bummer. You know, he, he didn't have eternal life, he, he just was healed, and then eventually he died again. But see, when we get new life, we never have to die. Yes, we'll die a physical death, but we'll go right to be with the Lord. So how is it different, and in what ways are they similar? See, our, our new birth is far greater than his. We're going to have resurrected bodies. He's, he just got the same old body he had, and eventually he'd get sick again, and eventually, as I said, he'd die. But we got something more profound. Finally, look back at verse 40. Discuss how this miracle revealed the glory of God. How did Jesus, doing what he did, saying, Lazarus, come forth, reveal the glory of God? And what does it say about what's going to happen at about a month and a half later? Let me pray for us, and you guys have a great week, and I'll see you next week with chapter 12. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all that you do to reveal to us in your word the gift that we've been given through Jesus Christ. I thank you for the story of Lazarus because it's the story of all of us. It's the story of who we were, where we were before Christ came into our life. We were dead. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We were wrapped in the death cloths that kept us in a tomb unable to do anything of value for you or anyone else. And we were headed to permanent death, separation from you for eternity. And yet Jesus Christ died on the cross out of your love for us so that we might be made right with you. And as a result, we've been given new life in Christ. We have been set free. And as Jesus Christ himself said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Would you help each and every one of us to live as free as you have made us? No longer trapped in the 
cloths of death, but robed in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we pray your blessings on the week ahead of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. See you guys next week.